And we will shift to today's scripture reading, which is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. As a community, we have been walking through the letter of Philippians. This was a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul actually wrote probably more than half of the New Testament. Paul's in, in, in house arrest, and he writes to spur the church that he's planted. This is the church that he's planted. And he writes to a church in the city of Philippi to, to tell them to keep on keeping on, right? To fight through the challenges that exist both outside of the church walls but within as well. And really finish, his, his message is practice joy in season of trial and finish the race that has been marked out for you. That's really the message of the book of Philippians. And we, we are continuing our series, and we pick up from chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open to chapter 2 and find 12 to 18, and we're going to be just walking through that passage. But our passage today in verse 12 begins with prepositional phrase, therefore. Everyone say, therefore. Or so then. So everything Paul will be talking about in our passage, verses 12 to 18, finds their strength and encouragement on what he has already shared in verses 1 to 11. Pastor John did a wonderful John, wonderful job of walking us through verses 1 to 11. That was last week. Particularly verses 6 to 11, what we call as the poem of Christ. Paul says, this is what Christ did for you. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Right? Even death on a cross. Therefore, you do the same thing as you treat one another. Right, that's the home of Christ. And, and Paul says, look at what Christ has done. Allow the resurrection of the cross, the exaltation of Christ, and the worship of our Savior move you and I to what he is about to challenge the church to do in verses 12 to 18. you got to see that. So then, therefore, look at verses 1 to 11. Because of that, let's do this. That's the first thing. We, I want to I note here, in fact, the placement of the poem of Christ, verses 6 to 11, this is very intentional, right? It's at the heart of Paul's letter. It's at the center of Paul's letter because everything that Paul writes in this letter to the church in Philippi begins and ends with this truth of what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to continue throughout this series. We've got maybe four or five messages more. We're going to continue to come back to verses 6 to 11. Jesus revealing 
That's the nature of God. That's what Pastor John talked about. Jesus laying down his life, him being God, laying down his life to die for us. That is actually the nature of God and Jesus reveals to us. Suffering servant. And now as followers of Christ, that is the only model that we have been given. So we're going to go to the next, next phrase. Therefore, my beloved, and Paul says, work out. Each of you work out your own salvation. So the verse 12, the word work out literally means to bring about, to produce, to create. Right? So, so this is interesting because Paul's been talking about we are saved by faith alone. Right, that's a very Paul. Paul's theology of salvation has been, it's only by faith alone. But if we're not careful, what we may assume when we read this, if you read this text without the context of what was happening in Church of Philippi, we can read this text as if Paul's telling us salvation is up to you. Your own salvation is actually up to you. You better earn it. You better live in fear and trembling or you might lose your salvation. Perhaps you've heard that kind of preaching. But we know Paul is not saying each of us are responsible for our own salvation, right? This is why context is important. If you've been tracking with us through this series and have read other letters of Paul, Paul is adamant about salvation being a gift. He will fight you tooth and nail if you said, oh, we could earn our salvation. Paul was actually against a group of people that said, you got to be more like Jews, you got to eat like Jews. you got to act like Jews. If you want to be saved, then Paul says, that is not the gospel, right? It's very clear. Even earlier in the letter of Philippians, Paul makes it clear, salvation is not what we do or what we earn. It is a gift that we can never attain on our own. And there are numerous occasions when Paul addresses the topic of salvation. Not more clear than Ephesians chapter 2, I think. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if Paul isn't speaking about you and I earning our salvation here in verse 12, what is, challenge, what is he challenging the believers to do in verse 12? That's the question we have to ask. To answer that question, we, we need to look closely to what was happening in the church of Philippi at the time of Paul's writing. This is a letter that was written at a, at a time to a group of people, and Paul was very intentional about addressing that church. Yes, we have this letter as scripture, but in this letter, there's also Paul is addressing that church with its own set of challenges and issues that they were facing. And we know if you read the letter, through the letter, uh, there was some tension between some of the members of the church. Right? Chapter 4. In fact, there was a big enough issue that Paul addresses those members by name in chapter 4, verse 2. And he tells these two women to agree in the Lord and ask others to do their part in bringing peace. Making sure they, they work out this disunity that existed in the church. And we are, we are not told what caused this conflict. Paul doesn't talk about why this conflict existed in the church because Paul spends no, not very much time on who's right, who's wrong. He doesn't say, you're right, you're wrong, you should apologize. No, he simply says both take on the attitude of Christ. And that's 
actually all of chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 11, right? That's why he begins chapter 2 in verse 1. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy of being the same mind. The same love, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from self, selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's talking directly to some of the members of the church, saying you count the other person more important than yourself. Count other person more significant. Have this attitude of Christ. And that's why verse 5 to 11, he talks about what Christ did for us, right? Who though was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by becoming a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did that out of his love for us and out of his love for God. So you, too, whoever's sitting there, agree with one another, forgive each other. You see where Paul's getting at in all of chapter 2, actually. You see, Christ died for the ungodly. That's Paul's exact point, right? See, Christians in Philippi understood that Christ was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was abandoned. He was betrayed by his closest friends. Yet he was obedient to the very end. So that's why Paul looks at the church and says, if there is any disagreement for whatever reason with other fellow brothers and sisters in your community, you do your best to work it out. And friends, we will have disagreements in the church. I've been a Christian since I was born because I'm a pastor's kid. I've seen a lot of disagreements in the church. My grandfather was a pastor. My dad was a pastor. There was a lot of drama we went through as a family. So I know there are disagreements in the church because it's led by imperfect people like me and it's attended by imperfect people like you. Right? I mean, we're surprised that there's disagreement and drama in church. No, we, just as you have drama at work, just as you have drama at home, just as you have drama in the subway with some random lady that pushes you, we have drama in the church. We're broken people trying to follow Christ together. Right? Uh, yet, right, th that this doesn't mean every argument, every disagreement, every conflict, you know, there'll be drama. But, but really what Paul's talking about is the way we address these conflicts and dramas. But that doesn't mean Paul's not saying every conflict, every disagreement, every, every issue will be solved. I mean, we, we see Paul and we see Peter and the scripture. They had to set, set, set apart, go different ways because of Mark and, and just different things. Yeah, what Paul is saying is we all can work, work on how we approach our disagreements, our conflicts and our challenges. Paul's addressing to each believer's yeah, we may not be able to find res resolution and solution to every problem, every disagreement, but you yourself can take on the attitude of Christ. And, and verse, verse 14, Paul goes on to give a very practical way we can combat this unity both within the church and outside the church. What does he say? Very practical. He says, stop grumbling. Stop disputing. Verse 14. I mean, it's so easy to complain, right? It's so easy to be grumbler. You guys are like, no, I, I don't grumble. I, I, I complain all the time. I, I find myself complaining about the weather, about my coffee, about just smallest things. It's so easy to, 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 to grumble and complain about all the things that's happening in our lives. 
We can have the most amazing week and still find reasons to complain, right? We can have the most supportive group of people at work and still find reasons to mummer. Uh, to, to grumble literally, literally means to speak underneath your breath, mummer, right? That, that's literal translation, right? To, to just complain. It's so easy to just complain about just the things that we don't like. And Paul says, stop doing that. Verse 14, the second verb is to dispute, to dispute, which literally means to have doubtful imagination. I like this, doubtful. Doubtful imagination. When disagreement, disagreement arises in, our, in your community, in our homes, in our workplaces, what's the temptation that we all are faced with? Whenever we disagree with someone at work or at home, at church, what's the temptation? It is, it is to assume not the best of somebody, but the worst, right? It is assumed the worst of the person who disagrees with us. We are tempted whenever we find ourselves in tension and conflict we're tempted to create imaginative narratives that often make the other person purely evil. Is it just me? Am I, am I, am I sharing too much of myself? It's, it's all of us, right? Uh, often, right, we are, we are tempted to interpret everything that person does, the person that we don't like. Or that, do, that what they do not do through the lens of our feelings. We feel offended. We feel upset. We feel angry. So whatever they do, it's like they meant to do that. And that blinds us from seeing things objectively, right? And we, really what Paul's saying is we judge with evil thoughts. And he says, stop judging others with evil thoughts. I mean, at least I know I do this a lot. When I feel offended by someone, it's easy to think the worst of somebody. The other day I was sitting, like two days ago, I was sitting at a Starbucks, just minding my own business, uh, sitting at a reserve section. I didn't know at these reserve Starbuckses you had to pay $9 for coffee and there was a reserve seating only for those that pay 9 bucks for their coffee, right? Um, so I was sitting there. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't drinking coffee because it was like 6 o'clock at night. I had a tea and I was just sitting there minding my own business because there's no other space in this. Everybody loves to work at Starbucks, right? I love, I love doing that. So I'm there. One of the baristas came by and asked me to move because the section I was sitting on was reserved for people that only ordered reserved coffee, right? And the whole section, I mean, the whole section was empty. I mean, there's nobody. It's like 6 o'clock. Who's drinking coffee? Nobody's drinking no reserved coffee, right? It's empty, right? Um, and, I, and, and, and just irked me, just bothered me. I was like, I'm just doing my work, dude. It's like 6 o'clock Friday night. I just want to do this. Why are you bothering me? And, and as soon as that person came up and told me to move, I was offended. And, and, and that, even though that person was just doing their job, right? You think about it, they're just doing their job. They're just doing what they're told, right? I was like, this person hates me. They want to ruin my day. They, you know, I can't, I can't focus and, 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 and honor God through this sermon prep. Like, I, I was just so angry. I was so annoyed of the fact that I was so angry and just ruined my evening, right? But at that moment, what did I do? I could have just simply moved over to another table, even if it was like a little crowded, it was a little inconvenient, I could just move. But I judged that man with evil thoughts. Again, as I was sitting there preparing this wonderful sermon. <laughs> but truth is, the guy was just doing his job. He wasn't trying to ruin my day. He, he wasn't just singling me out. Right? There was a sign that says reserve only. I, I'm the one who broke the rule. But at that moment, at that, I, I couldn't see things clearly. I was just upset. 
So it's so easy to create imaginative narratives about people that we don't like or people that we disagree with. So, so how can we combat? So Paul says, stop grumbling. Stop creating these imaginative, doubtful ideas about somebody. And he says, actually, live differently. So how can we combat? That's the question we need to ask. Are sinful desires to divide, judge, and fight? Because we face that every day. As you're coming here in the subway, I'm sure you fa- some of you face that. As you were in a crowded subway, maybe someone pushed you, maybe someone cut you. How do we combat our sinful desire to divide and judge? How do we live lives that are blameless, like what Paul talks about in our passage? Innocent, children of God, without blemish. How do we remain united in this community? You know, we've had some drama in our church. We've had some disagreements. We've had people leave because of disagreements. How can we remain humble and gracious in our homes, in our workplaces, especially with those who are not very good human beings? And that's, that's simply true. We, every time we go to work, every time we go out, we face broken people like you and I. Right? So how do we remain united? How do we remain together? I think the key is in verse 12. Paul says, work out your salvation. Come together. Be united with fear and trembling. Everyone say fear and trembling. We don't like fear and trembling. I don't think that's a popular idea in modern Christianity, fear and trembling. But whenever the word fear and trembling comes out, whenever Paul uses the word fear and trembling, he is borrowing Old Testament language. This is a very Old Testament idea. And every time the idea of fear fear and trembling comes up in the Old Testament text, it speaks of awe, A-W-E, awe and wonder that people displayed in the presence of Yahweh. It was whenever people were in presence of God, Moses being the presence of God, Isaiah being the presence of God, there was awe and wonder, fear and trembling. And and Paul says the only way you're going to be able to display true humility, only way you're going to be able to treat others more significant than yourself is to live in fear and trembling of God, to live in awe of God. That's really what Paul is talking about, right? He's not talking about you fear and tremble other Christians, other believers. No, he's saying you fear God in a healthy way. You tremble before God in a healthy way. Then you're going to be able to live in humility. Even if you step outside of humility, you're going to be able to come back and see the amazing wonder of God. So what is awe of God? Because I don't think we talk about awe of God enough in the church. Historic meaning of awe implies a potent emotional experience. The verb to awe literally means to fright or terror. German theologian Rudolf Otto, he says this, and I quote, The awe of God consists of two intertwined emotions. One aspect is a, is a sensation of trembling. What comes from a perception of being in the presence of something uncanny, overpowering, and vibrantly alive. Second, there is a mystery which typically leads a person to fascination, feelings of astonished, thunderstruck, transfixed, or dumbfounded. Being in the presence of something infinitely grand and being astonished by that very thing. That's awe. That's wonder. I like how C.S. Lewis helps us understand 
the awe of God, right? In his book, The Problem of Pain, Lewis says, imagine that we come across a wild tiger. I just, I mean, we live in a city. We never see tigers. But imagine, just try to imagine with you, you walk out of Starbucks and you see this wild tiger, right? So imagine with me. The likely emotion you would experience would be what? You're not going to be like, hey, kitty, come here. No, you're going to be like, oh, that's, that's, that's tiger. We better run. Fear. Imagine now you believe that you are in the presence of ghost. The feeling would be fear, but it would be more eerie than fear, right? Eerie. Then imagine that you believed you were in the presence of mighty spirit. The feeling would have been one step more removed from fear, perhaps best described as awe. You guys get the picture a little bit, a little bit? I mean, we've all had experiences of awe. All of something, right? Ten years ago, I was in Seattle visiting my friends. My friends said, you got to check out this island. Seattle is awesome. So we were, we were visiting this island. We're on a boat, clear day, beautiful. And we're just, me and my friends were chatting, just talking. And then out of nowhere, I see this giant whale just jumping out of the water. Like, like it, it was far from me. It literally felt like it was like right in front of my eyes. But it was, it was far. But it, I was just like, oh, what is that thing? I mean, that was amazing just to see that giant whale jump out of the water like 10. It felt like 20 feet, but I don't know how, 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 how high they jump. Science teachers, you may know, they jump. And it was like they're posing for this photo. But I was just like, oh, my goodness, that's crazy. I've never seen such a big thing jump so high, right? That's really the sense of awe that, that Paul is talking about. But, but, but why is living in awe of God important? I mean, this is, this is the question. Why is it important that we live in the awe of God, that we restore this sense, this awe of God in our own walk? It is important because it touches, it, it, it touches down to what it means to be human. It's how God has designed you and I. It's how God has designed humanity. The first four words... In the book of Genesis, first four words in our Bible is what? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Right? They're the most important words that tell us who we truly are. That are the most important words that describe who we are, who we are meant to be, our identity, our meaning, our calling, everything we are. Right? From the very beginning, right? Genesis 1, God has created you and I, humanity, to live in awe of himself. That was design, God's design for humanity. In fact, all that we do, every big and small decision that you make, how you and I treat others, how we handle our finances, what we put in our calendars, all are deeply influenced by either our awe of God or our awe of something else. Pastor Paul Tripp, uh, one of the guys I really, really love reading, he wrote a whole book called Awe. This, his whole book was about awe of God. And in his book, he says, this awe of something seats at the bottom of every human heart and impacts everything we say and do. In fact, all humans have been wired for awe of God. Let me ask you, friends, are you in awe of God? As you enter this sanctuary, as we were singing these songs, as you're hearing the preaching of God's word, is there a sense of awe of God? Or has that awe of God been replaced by your awe of something else? Right? 
When was the last time you paused in the middle of your day, middle of whatever you were doing, to be amazed by the presence of God in your life, for his generosity, for his grace, his mercy? You literally paused and said, man, God has been so good to me. I mean, these are the questions we must ask ourselves as we come to church, as we do our faithful disciplines, as, as we go about our day. These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Have we lost our awe of God? You know, a few months ago, I was having dinner with one of my friends who's a pastor at a prominent church in Korea. And we're just talking about COVID and church, how, how everything's going at his church. And he told me, the senior pastor of this prominent church told the staff, they reckons that 30 to 40% of the congregation will not return to church after COVID. This is, this is a, a, a very healthy church, very well-known church, very respected church. And he, his senior pastor told the staff, hey, 30, 40% of people are going to be gone. They're not coming back. And we better plan according to people not coming back. And you, you ask yourself, why are people not coming back to church after COVID? Why are people not coming back to their community it's not that they are no longer Christian. It's not that they no longer love God. It's really, you know, for a year and a half, they didn't come to church. Maybe they worshiped online. And, and they didn't have much interaction with maybe church community. And they realized their faith has largely remained the same. Actually going to church, attending service, doing Christian things with the local community hasn't really made that much difference. They realized that a year and a half. That, that this was my conversation with my friend. And I'm thinking, man, that's what church is missing. Like we replaced the awe of God with loud music, with stage, with, with, with TED-like talks. We replaced with a great kids program and parking and lights and coffee. And, 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 and we replaced this awe of God, right? Even the way we, we think about looking for a church. If you're, if you're nearly looking for a church, you have, you have a checklist. Oh, I want a good children's program. I want, a, I want comfortable chairs. I want good parking. I hope the sermon is not longer than 45 minutes. I hope the, the, the preacher is entertaining enough where I stay awake. I mean, all these things are what we're thinking about. Or, or is there anyone like me? I mean, I mean, we have all these questions. But the question we have to ask ourselves, and as a church in this city, we have to ask ourselves, have we replaced awe of God with something else? Have we tried to fabricate this awe of God with our own effort and, and ways? And, and COVID has revealed God is using COVID to reveal to us that we need to repent as a church, that we need to do things differently. And so me and my friend, we prayed and we said, God, help us, help our churches. Friends, we need to restore this awe of God in our lives, in our churches, in our homes, in our workplaces. We cannot replace the awe of God with loud music and smokes and stage and lights and entertainment. And, 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 and why are we surprised that people are not coming back to church? Why are we surprised that people are totally fine just attending online church? We shouldn't be because this is what we, this is, including, this is what we've done. So friends, I, I firmly believe God is using our season under covid Social distancing, 10% um, attendance thing to renew and restore our churches in this city, right? And, 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 and so we need to pray for, for not only our church, but church in the city, that we would go back 
to really bringing the awe of God in our preaching, in our singing, in our testifying, in our community groups. It's not about all the other things, but let's major in the awe of God. And as you're listening, if you've lost the sense of all God, you're like, man, Pastor Sangmi, I don't know, last time I, I stopped and said, man, God is so grand and amazing and terrifying. If that's you, the first thing we need to do is that we need to get on our knees. And we need to ask God, God, show me, reveal to us your true self. Reveal to us once again when we first fell in love with you. Reveal to us once again the beauty, the wonder, the terror of who you are. And then we need to surround ourselves with people that are awestruck by God. Right? That's another thing we need. If you're struggling to see the grandness of God, we surround ourselves with men and women who are awestruck, who are living their life in the reality of their awe of God. And, and their lives and their example will help us regain our understanding, our perspective of who God is. And the scripture promises us, right, if we humble ourselves, First Chronicles, if we humble ourselves, if we humble ourselves and seek him, he will reveal himself. He will be faithful. He will restore our churches. He will restore our land. He will restore our own broken hearts. Amen? But here's the most hopeful truth from our text. And I want to close our time with verse 13. This is the most hopeful thing. God did not leave it to us to figure out our own unity or our way. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you. Friends, it is God who works in you both to will to work his good pleasure. Look at somebody next to you. God, it is God who works. Do it right now. It's uncomfortable. Just do it. It is God who works. See, friends, when you and I come to Christ, God isn't simply interested in changing our behavior. That's what Paul says. He wants to change us from inside out. Not just our work, but our will. That's what verse 13 says. Friends, if you are in Christ, he's working in you today. Right? You may not feel it. You may not perceive it. You may even be frustrated with lack of progress you're making in your faith work. Walk, work, walk, walk. Yet the truth is, God is working in you. God is moving you forward. If you're in Christ, God does the heavy work. Right? We work, but God does the heavy work. And for it is God who works, and His work never stops. It never gives up. It never gives out. Why is that the case? I mean, how can I be so sure? I mean, Simon, you don't know my life. You don't know how fickle I am. You don't know how, what kind of sin I'm struggling with. How can you be so confident about that truth? Well, here, because it's already, Paul has already told us what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished for us. I can be sure that God will not quit, that God will not give up, God will not fail us because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by becoming in the likeness of men, by being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
You see, what the gospel says is Jesus made a payment for each of us with his own life. So when God the Father sees us fumbling, failing, struggling, still stuck in our ways and our sins, he doesn't judge us as he should. He sees you and I as his child, as children of God without blemish. Amen? Friends, God never promised that we will always have a great place to live. God never promised we will never face another pandemic. God never promised that we will always have a great job, obedient children, easy marriage, or, or, or every relationship will be wonderful. God never promised that. He hasn't promised your physical health, a wonderful community always. Yet what He has promised is that He's going to complete the good work that He's begun in you. Right? That's, that's, that's what Scripture says. Right? Philippians 1. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So friends, it is God who directs. It is God who strengthens. It is God who sustains. You see, we love the idea of purpose-driven life. I, I like the book. It's a good book. Purpose-driven life. Purpose-driven church. God, Paul says, it's God-driven life. It is God-driven community that we are guaranteed through passage. Even our purpose, our willing, our easing to live and work and play, they come from God. It all begins with God. This is not the, our world that we live in. This is not our job, our career, our workplace. It's all God's and God has invited you and I. As his, as his masterpieces to continue to keep on as he continues to do his faithful work. And that's the promise that Paul is not only giving the Philippian church, but he's giving to each of us as we, as we came to worship today. Be reminded, God is working in you. God is working in you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray. Um, Lord, we, we, we repent of the way the casual way that we approach you, God. We repent of not expecting you to show up. We repent, Lord, this afternoon of coming to church without much expectation, God. We repent, God, of, of living our lives as if you do not exist, as if you are just our friend or our genie. Living our lives as if we are the center of the universe, God. We repent of our own understanding, our way of church. As a church, we repent of trying to create or fabricate the awe of God. Lord, we need you. Lord, the city needs you. Lord, we need you in our own lives. As the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see. You give us heart to comprehend. You give us hunger. If there's no hunger in this room, God, would you create hunger in our hearts? And Lord, we pray for unity over our community. We pray unity in our workplaces. We pray for humility as we approach work, as we approach our schools, as we approach our students. Humility as we approach our bosses and our coworkers. Doesn't matter what they say, doesn't matter what they do, Lord. You've only called us to take on the attitude of Christ. If anyone is angry in this place today, Lord, would you work on our anger? If anyone is greedy, would you work on our greed? If anyone is 
upset, if we have imaginative narratives about people, if we see the worst of people, would you change perspective, Lord? Renew us once again so that we could be children of God without blemish that will shine like star, shine like star in this world that is broken and lost. We thank you. We love you. Just in we pray. Amen.